Legally Sound Smart Business presents Behind the Buy. This broker said that he shouldn't disclose anything until we get the purchase agreement done. Whoever he is, we just got to keep an eye on him, make sure he doesn't kill this deal. He was supposed to give notice to exercise that option six months prior. Right, but this is this is a huge issue. I think we were able to buy some time, and I, I told you, you know, twists and turns, this is how these transactions go. <laughs> Sound Smart Business, where your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stomp, cover business in the news and add their awesome legal twist. Legally Sound Smart Business is a podcast brought to you by Pasha Law PC, a law firm representing your business in California, Illinois, New York, and Texas. Here are your hosts, Nasser Pasha and Matt Stobb. All right, welcome. My name is Nasser Pasha. Now, Matt Stobb. This is our fourth episode on Behind the Buy, a series where we're walking through the process of buying a business with our client, and this one is a doozy. I think this is our first real obstacle, and this is also during our due diligence period, right after we've signed the letter of intent, but before the purchase agreement's kind of finalized. But this is realistic in an actual transaction, too, and now we've kind of gotten into kind of gotten to the substance and the meat of this transaction. Like you said, there's a lot of interworking pieces and components that are going on. So this, I think this is a this one's a, a great listen if someone really wants to understand what's all entailed in the, the purchase of a business. Right. And some of these things you just can't predict, but in a lot of ways, it's totally predictable. That is, you're going to get things that you're not going to expect. And so there are some vocabulary words we use in here. We want to make sure we define beforehand. First one is earnest money and third-party escrow. In this call, we start talking about how we're going to be depositing a more sizable deposit with a third-party escrow as an earnest money. And again, this is not dissimilar from buying a house. When you're buying a business, it's kind of the same way. You're actually depositing cash usually in a with a third party. They're called the escrow agent or the escrow officer, and they retain it in their bank account in trust, and they will release those funds upon instruction from both the buyer and seller or as otherwise directed into in the actual purchase agreement. The, the next couple of terms we have, uh, we have asset purchase and then we have stock purchase or also equity purchase kind of used interchangeably. So I think we've talked about this in some in the previous episodes, but an asset purchase in this context would be a situation where you're only you're kind of picking and choosing the items you want to buy from the seller, kind of an a la carte uh, way of looking at it. With the stock or equity purchase, you're you're buying everything. So that's that's what we're talking about when we say asset purchase or versus a stock or equity purchase, right? So the next couple of terms are healthcare related. Our buyer is buying an urgent care. So we do have to cover some health industry specific terms just to make sure that everything's communicated properly. There's just two here. One is CLIA wave testing. That just refers to the urgent care, whether it has to be certified by CLIA, which uh, certain labs have to do that. It's And we find out that, okay, this is not a 
a lab that requires that kind of CLIA license. And, and the reason that's important is because whether or not we need to transfer that license or get a new license when you're buying the business. The second item is also kind of related to that in the sense we have to see whether we need to transfer any in-network provider agreements as well. And most healthcare facilities are in-network, meaning they have some kind of contract with an insurance payer to be reimbursed at a certain rate. And whether or not these can be transferred or assigned or needs permission from that insurance payer if there's some kind of sale of the business is very specific to that contract. And so we talk about making sure we have access to those provider agreements and taking a look at that. And, and our clients were pretty familiar with that process, and so they were going to actually do that themselves. Right. And the last few terms we have are all, uh, I guess, all related to the lease. Everyone loves lease talk. So we mentioned something about a, a, a I think we say lease contingency. I don't know if that's really a, a I know it's not really a term of art, but basically what we're, we're talking about here is if there's a contingency in the purchase agreement that the, I guess in this case, the, the lease is going to, um, there was the exercise, the option to extend, or they're able to extend. We'll, we'll get into the, why that's uh, relevant later on here. And then lastly, we have personal guarantee. So again, this, this deals with the lease and it's just, if, if you're signing a lease as the tenant, sometimes the landlord requires you to sign what's called a personal guarantee, meaning that, you know, if, if you executed on behalf of an entity, you personally, whoever's the one doing the guarantee, are, are going to also be personally responsible for, you know, the terms of the lease, ma mainly the, the payment of the rent every month. Right. So that's our vocab for the episode. Not too heavy, I think, but uh, stay tuned. Let's listen to this call and we'll come back with our commentary. All right. Okay. Uh, thanks for getting on. It's been about a week since we last spoke and I know a lot has happened. So we may need to just go start from the beginning from our last uh, recording, which is, I think, again, I think it was about a week ago. Yeah, and it seems like forever ago. Right. So I can start. Uh, you know, as you know, you sent out our draft letter of intent, the seller signed right away. So that's great. The next step was to get some basic financials, including the lease. But then the business broker came into the picture and seems to have held up any document disclosures. Yeah, the seller was, in fact, about to send it to me, um, and then he called me saying that his broker said that he shouldn't disclose anything until we get the purchase agreement done. Um, and by the way, I found out yesterday that the broker is a friend, so I don't know if that matters or not. Yeah, okay. That that actually explains a lot of things and, frankly, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he just seemed to be getting in the way of the transaction rather than facilitating it. Right. We, we should find a way to minimize his role if we can. Yeah. If we can do that, I, I feel like that would be best. Yeah. So, okay. So going back, uh, so the broker came into the picture and even though we weren't close to doing a full purchase agreement yet, they wanted to close quickly as if it's automatic, but I think we were able to buy some time and, and placate his broker friend. So that's good. Oh, and by the way, I actually looked him up to see if he was licensed. Oh, okay. So obviously what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could guess, but... So in California, business brokers should technically be registered with the Department of Real Estate. Uh, he'd not come up as licensed in California, so he's either just one of those unlicensed brokers, which, again, is pretty common in the states that don't require it, uh, or maybe just a friend that has some business background. Okay, so well, either way, whoever he is, we just got to keep an eye on him, make sure he doesn't kill this deal unnecessarily. But anyway, we, we've deposited the money, right? Yeah. 15K? I transferred those funds yesterday. Okay, great. Perfect. And that money is fully protected, right? 
Yeah, so it is. We basically amended the LOI to include an earnest money deposit. It's either going to be refunded to you at the end of the 30-day period, or it'll be applied towards the purchase price uh, when we sign the purchase agreement. Yeah, so, and usually we should consider, um, we would consider a, a third-party escrow, but and I think we talked about this last time. So given that it was a small amount compared to the, you know, the, the purchase price itself, and we need to get this done quickly, I, you know, it was an acceptable risk just to transfer it directly. And, and, you know, obviously it helps that he's a licensed physician. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. I, I really don't think he's going to steal it or anything. Yeah, right. So that does remind me, in speaking to the broker, I do think that they're going to want a more substantial deposit at the signing of the purchase agreement. And in that case, we we definitely should use an escrow because it's probably going to be a sizable amount. I, I don't know how much, but probably, you know, I would say 10, 15% or so of the purchase price. And of course, protect your funds, but it's more about also just keeping the transaction moving along. There's something about having that money locked up in escrow and it doesn't get unlocked until the transaction's closed that kind of pushes things for the seller. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Um, so what would be our next step then? We're still determining the structure of the acquisition, but to answer your question, the next step is to get this purchase agreement done. But I, th I think we've narrowed down your decision on how to actually structure this thing. So we've looked at in-network provider agreements, and for the most part, as expected, they have a some kind of procedure to actually assign these agreements. Despite that, even if there's a change of control, so if you actually do an equity purchase, you still have to get their consent. So there's really no advantage of doing it as a equity purchase. So most likely an asset purchase is what makes sense here. And I would also note that if Dr. has their, I mean, your partner uh, has his own provider contracts already for his practice, then he needs to look to see and compare the rates because oftentimes, and, and this existed in these contracts, the payer is going to have the option in this circumstance to pick and choose which contract applies because it's by tax ID usually, not by facility. So that's something that you need to look into as well. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I can look into it or I can send you Dr. D's current contracts with the payers and we can see what that would mean. Yeah, absolutely. We're happy to do that as well. And, you know, I'll look at it too either way, but I'll send you a copy. Um, so let's think, is there anything else? Okay, so based on that, though, let me go over a couple more things. So we, we shouldn't do a stock purchase for uh, another reason as well, because I confirm there's no special license for urgent cares. They are doing CLIA wave testing anyway, so you don't need that certification. So that's also not an issue. Uh, what else? Yeah, and I also I looked into the lease agreement they provided. And so it does require consent to assign the lease, but it doesn't have a change of control provision. So if you were to do a stock purchase, you wouldn't need the landlord's permission, but I don't think it, that it's enough to not do an asset purchase if we can. Um, I'll defer to you guys, but that's what I'm thinking, an asset purchase. Uh, okay, and I do want to note a couple things in the lease agreement. So it was a three-year lease, but they only have about five months left, and there's also a personal guarantee. Wait, 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 five months? Yeah. I'm pretty sure he said he had five more years on the lease. Um, and obviously five months wouldn't really work. Yeah, he might have got mixed up here. So he did have a five-year option, uh, but we need to check if he missed the deadline because he was supposed to give notice to exercise that option six months prior to the end of the term. So unless he did that, the lease is going to terminate in five months. Okay, so he missed it? Uh, well, okay, so we don't know that for sure. And, you know, we should find out directly from him, but... 
I, I, you know, I think Matt agrees. I, I do suspect that he probably did miss it. Only reason we're thinking that is because you know, it's, it's such a big deal. It's something that you would probably have included in the disclosures. And also, you know, we've already seen this guy is not the most organized of, of business owners. So I, I, I suspect he did. Right. But this is, this is a huge issue. And the location is part of the reason why we're buying it. No, I, I get it. So we need to act quickly. You know, this goes to, we need to get this purchase agreement done as soon as possible now, I think. But in particular, we need to start you having that conversation with the landlord. That's really the only way that we're going to be able to determine whether you're going to be able to keep the lease, you know, whether he's interested in another tenant or what have you. So we need to get some background information for that. But we really can't do that. And it's not typical that makes sense to do that until a purchase agreement is actually signed. So that should be our priority. And, and what's nice about this is that it's a typical strategy to actually put the, put the lease assignment as a contingency on closing. So this allows us to sign this purchase agreement, but still have a, a, you know, a way for you to back out in case you're not able to work something out with the landlord. So I think we can work this out. We'll make this part of the transaction. So you just need to get the consent from the landlord and make sure you get that five-year extension, regardless of whether he's missed the deadline or not. Okay. Well, I mean, in that case, maybe I can negotiate some better rates because frankly, he was overpaying for that space. I mean, it's a great location, but it's not set to the market. Okay. Well, okay. That's actually really good because we can even possibly use this then to our advantage with the landlord. I mean, there's always some risk. You don't want to lose the space, but you know, if what you're saying is true, given the market, I think we should be able to close that then. Yeah, that works out pretty well, actually, because the five-year option has a 5% escalation of the rent. So if you're saying that it's already too high, it would be better to go to the landlord and offer your own more reasonable terms because the alternative is for the landlord to lease a space in the open market, which will be less anyways. <sighs> okay, so this isn't too bad. This is good. Okay. Right. So it's, I, I told you, you know, twists and turns, this is how these transactions go. It's, um, but this is, this is how it works. I'm learning. Okay. So besides the lease contingency, we need to, we need to include a couple more. I think, uh, okay. So yeah, that's right. So we have the provider agreements. So that needs to be part of the deal. Second is, uh, I think there, there was some liens on, uh, there's some liens, right, that we found on the property or uh, the, the business? Yeah, it looks like he financed some of the equipment because he had a lien filed against his assets. Yeah, it's probably his x-ray machine. Okay, so we'll look into that. But so these contingencies, again, just to kind of reiterate how this works, you will not have any obligations to close unless these three check boxes are marked. You know, you have the lease, you have the provider agreements and this UCC lien for the x-ray machine or whatever equipment is removed. And if for whatever reason you can't negotiate with the landlord, then you can terminate and get your deposit back. Of course, if all those three checkboxes are marked, then you, you, you know, you'll be obligated to move forward. But by that time, you'll be ready to go anyway. That's awesome. That's perfect. Um, I'll, I'll explain that to my partner later today. Okay, perfect. And by the way, speaking of him, so you should mention that I think um, Matt mentioned that there is a personal guarantee in the lease, so it's unlikely that the landlord is going to remove the old personal guarantee unless it's replaced by a new one. And obviously, the seller is not going to agree to be held responsible for a lease that he's no longer, you know, occupying. So I would just make the assumption that either your partner, Doctor, or you, or both, may have to actually personally guarantee this lease. Yeah, of course, that makes sense. Um, both myself or Doctor. We, we don't have any problem with that. All right. Very good. So, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to structure this as an asset purchase. Uh, the seller may not prefer this, obviously, but it's pretty common. 
to do it this way, so he shouldn't have an issue. Okay, great. Um, I'm still waiting on an updated P&L and a balance sheet, as well as a few other items, but I'll put it in our shared folder as soon as I receive it, and I'll let you know. Okay, very good. And there are a couple other items. Uh, you still need to follow up with him, and I'll just email you a list of what's left. Yeah, no problem. Um, could you just make sure you email both myself and Dr. because uh, he wants to be more involved as we get closer to the closing process? Yeah, no problem. Um, all right, have a great day. All right, you too, bye. Thank you. See you later. Bye. Okay, welcome back. Wow, that was fun. Lots to talk about there. But first, we, before we get into it, Matt, let's, of course, thank our sponsor. They've been supporting us throughout this entire series, and we can't forget to you know show our gratitude. This is what brings us to all our listeners. Who's our sponsor this time? Yeah, it's it's Posh Law PC. It's a, a law firm, a corporate law firm that's that's in California, Texas, New York, and Illinois. Right, and so they actually represent clients in buying a business. So it's interesting that we're covering that issue on our podcast, and at the same time have a have a sponsor that does the same thing. That's a nice synergy there. Yeah, they, they must have a good uh, marketing team in place to to have the foresight to advertise on this on this podcast series. Yeah, absolutely. But I do, I do think they represent both buyer and sellers, um, and also they provide their general counsel select service, which is that they have some kind of retainer model where they pretty much cover everything and anything that a business may need on a fixed monthly fee. Exactly. Worth worth checking out. Definitely. Now that we got that out of the way, pay the bills, so to speak. So yeah, this call. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, there's so much to talk about here. I do want to pick on the broker again. I know we had a whole episode just talking about the broker, but I thought it was pretty funny that, again, like very predictable. Of course, this broker is not licensed. Uh, and I think we foreshadowed that a little bit in our last episode that most states or many states require them to be licensed. But they are often not. This is in California. Of course, Matt looked him up. He wasn't licensed. But nonetheless, you know, I had that phone call with him. It, it, went decently. We were able to get through that hump, but of course, that's not with more problems uh, coming down the line. Yeah. And and for the purpose of this episode, it wasn't, it doesn't rear his ugly head too much. Um, the one thing that, one of the things that stuck out to me was not disclosing any of the financials until receiving the purchase agreement, which I thought was a little bit odd, given that we had, you know, at this point the letter of intent had been signed. We have some confidentiality provisions in place, but the broker's advising his client to not, you know, send over any financial information until they get the purchase agreement signed. Which, I mean, I, I guess I could see it, but it still still kind of struck me as odd, given how far along we were in the transaction. Right, but we got past that, you know, and so with that extra. I think it was $15,000 deposit. It was, a, it was a small amount compared to everything. But when I did speak to the broker, it was definitely clear that once we did get a purchase agreement that we do put in some kind of more sizable escrow or earnest, or earnest money deposit. And in that case, that's where we were very much recommending that we use a third-party escrow. And we outlined this. There's, there was two reasons for this. One is that just protection, protecting the assets. Now, this particular seller, I mean, as far as we knew, they were a trustworthy person, they're a licensed physician, and so there's not really any reason for them for us to think that, you know, they're going to run away with it, but that's not really what we're trying to protect. 
once you give someone the money and there's kind of someone some kind of dispute you you know it's 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 possession right it's like it's kind of hard to get the money back if it's not in your possession but if it's within a third party escrow that third party can only do so many things as far as releasing releasing the funds and even if there's a dispute as to whether the funds need to be released there's at least it's not in any one one party's hand at the least that no one has a huge advantage over the other for for the most part but even then we we design our purchase agreements just like you know many of these transactions go is that it's it's refundable if the deal doesn't get done if these ticks are not checked if there's these contingencies are not met then the escrow payment is returned so it's it's a relatively safe prospect regardless of whether or not you have a third party escrow involved yeah, I mean, let's just think about it logically, real quick. I mean, if you're so, if you're in the shoes of the the buyer and you have to fork over you know, this this earnest money, and I guess that later on there was, like you said, a more sizable um, amount that was put in escrow. Would you rather it be in the hands of the seller, or would you rather it be in the hands of a uh, what's to, supposed to be an independent third party that has instructions on when it's allowed to re- release those funds? I mean, I think. Pretty much everyone would choose option B there, just because, like you said, if there is a dispute, I'd you'd much rather prefer that the person that you're disputing with is not also holding the funds. So it's just kind of common sense in that standpoint, right? And so, okay, so we we got over that hump with the escrow and so forth. We talked about that. A big part of the call was going through this asset purchase versus equity purchase analysis, and I think I do. I feel like I have to clarify. It's like. From from a lawyer's perspective, from our perspective, I think it was very obvious that that an asset purchase was the best way to go. But th- th- this is kind of the part of the process, and I think it's important for us as attorneys when we're talking to our clients that to walk them through our way of thinking and making sure that it is in fact the best idea. You know, we don't want to be too presumptuous. It's not like every transaction is always going to be the same for obvious reasons. And so we, for the benefit of the client and, and in a lot of ways, a benefit for the audience, we walk through what, it, what the process is, whether it's an asset or purchase. I mean, I, I don't want to give it the impression that, uh, you know, it, <laughs> I guess maybe I'm being a little oversensitive because from, from I, what I don't want to tell the client, look, we're, we're going to do an asset purchase agreement and that's it. That's what you're supposed to do, Right. I, we we kind of like the approach of talking it out, and I think that allows us to have a little bit more of a closer relationship with our clients because at the same time, we're educating them and making sure that when we go through the process, they feel comfortable every step of the way. Right, and, that, and that's our job. And I, well, I should say that's the job of any lawyer in this situation. It's probably not always the case, but you know, so I think there are occasions where it is very obvious, but like you said, a lot of times... It's more just you know explaining it to the client, making sure that you provide as much information inside as possible to allow them to make the most educated decision they can. And to be fair to everyone here, in this case, there were still we're in the due diligence phase. There still were a lot of unknowns, and some of those popped up on this call. We had some information that the le- about the lease that our client didn't know about. Uh, we, you know, we we talked about the provider agreements as well, and then I think there was also there was a lien on one of the the pieces of equipment. So, you know, obviously those would if we knew those from the beginning, it would definitely shift our opinion of whether this should be an asset or equity purchase. But you know, th- those are things that pop up, and that's the whole reason that we you know you might want to keep that those options open uh, until you get a 
signature on the purchase agreement. Right. And I'm, as, as you were thinking, I was like, the, the, there's still so many things that happen in that call, like the like you said, the lease agreement. I want to delay that a little bit just to kind of get over some of the business items. I, uh, so we talked about this uh, provider agreement. And again, it's, it's, it is specific to this industry, but it, when you're buying a business, there may be certain agreements that are very critical to the success of the business, okay? And a provider agreement or in-network provider agreement is one of those things, okay? So it could be you're buying a business and you're, you want to make sure that the service contracts that produce the revenue are there, right? Or you, this particular uh, seller has relationships with certain uh, vendors that provide really good cost savings for, for you on the supplies or services that you wouldn't otherwise be ac have access to unless you were able to retain that contract. And so part of the analysis when you're doing whether an asset or an equity agreement is to figure out, okay, if you do an asset purchase, how easy is it to assign that agreement over to the new entity? Because in an asset purchase, you're, it's a new tax ID, okay? So in an equity purchase, you are going in the shoes of that tax ID. And so Unless the agreement specifically says that if there's a change of control or ownership, you need the permission of the other party, typically you don't need any consent and you can step in the shoes and, and do that. Obviously, there might be some downsides in doing an equity purchase for the buyer. So that's why we take a look at these agreements that, okay, if for some reason these provider agreements or these payers, these insurance companies are unwilling to assign these agreements to a new party, maybe it is better to do an equity purchase. Now, generally, that's not the case, and I'm, I've, I've seen enough provider agreements that usually there's some options, but there's sometimes can be quite a number of restrictions. So that's one of the reasons why we take a look at these agreements in the due diligence period. Yeah, yeah and, and just going back to the whole asset versus equity uh, purchase options here, or I shouldn't say options, but the uh, asset versus equity purchase, it is, it's not just about the, the liabilities that you know, might be taken on in the in the equity purchase. I mean, I know we've I've I for one have talked about that a lot. But like you said, there's there's other considerations. Like if you're going to lose a critical agreement if it's not transferred over in an asset purchase, that that's a that's a big deal. Or like also on this call, there's the the thing that came up with the lease. I mean, obviously for for some businesses, location is is critical, and I think that was the case here. From I, I mean, I don't think that's it's basically what our our client said is, you know, this, right. everybody knows this location. It's, it'd be a huge deal if we had, no, not only if you had to go out and search and find a new location, which is going to take time and money, but just, you know, the, we're customers knowing where the location is, especially for a business like this is, is just so key. Right. So let's talk about this lease. I mean, this is, I don't know how, this is so typical, right? You have a small business, they sign a lease with an option to renew, and they've been in it long enough. No one's no one's looked at the lease since it was signed, and barely looked at then maybe the broker or some, you know, it was, it was some form contract. No one's looked at it since. And of course, in when you have an option to renew, there's some kind of notice period. And Matt, remind me if it was on this call or not. But we, I think we did end up confirming that he did miss the deadline. Hopefully, I'm not giving anything away. But the fact that he did that is, on one hand, not not surprising, but pretty pretty scary if you think about it when you're about to buy this business. Imagine if she bought this business and there's five months left in the lease and there's no way to continue on with the lease. 
to force the landlord to sign a new lease because now they have the upper hand. This turned out incredibly well though, right? I mean, I don't think we could have asked for a better result because in this case, before the purchase agreement was signed, now we know what the information is. Now in some ways, because the lease was an above market rent apparently, our buyer actually had the upper hand in negotiations. Yeah, yeah. To me, this whole discussion is is just the market dictates all of it. So, like you said, in in this True. scenario with our client, the uh, at least our our client believed it was it was overpriced. The rent was overpriced, so that allowed her to step in and essentially renegotiate terms on a new lease. You know, if let's but let's look at it from another angle. Let's say let's say it was underpriced. Well. That's I mean, a good point. The, yeah, it's it, to me. It's kind of the as long as you have a a landlord that's you know kind of I don't know whether the right way to put it a uh, a business savvy landlord you know they're they're going to reach out to they're going to be the ones that initiate the contact with the tenant for you know a possible you know exercising that five year option you know if it makes sense for them but they might not reach out to the landlord which might have been the case here probably was if it's not going to be advantageous so it's you know it's right. you like you said you have to you can't just sign the lease and put it in a drawer and you know forget about it you have to be aware especially when you have those options to renew and make those judgment calls at that time but you know like you said it, it worked out well for our client here so it, you can't really complain right and there, this is might be a Quick tangent, but if in case any of you have those kinds of you know provisions in your agreements or you're negotiating a lease, there's a couple things that we advise. One is that you can simply just calendar it. You know, if you have a calendaring system, just calendar it and have other people calendar it, etc. Even if it's long in the future, um, you can schedule emails. You can do a lot of different things that are long term to remind you to do X. Right? There's also, I mean, depending on how sophisticated, there's also software that that manages contracts and things like that. Another practical step, since we're talking about practical things here, is that uh, you can actually require the within the agreement that the land. Let's say that the tenant is the one that has the option to renew. That the clock doesn't start ticking until the landlord gives a good faith nudge by giving written notice, or vice versa. And so that way, that there's some kind of onus on both parties to to remind each other that hey. We need to decide whether or not to to renew, and in this case, you know, I think they they missed it by a, a month or so when they, we discovered that it had not been notified. And and obviously, a landlord is going to want some lead time to determine whether you're leaving or not, or whether you're renewing. And in this case, I think it was six months, and there was five months left. And so, so th there's a lot of different things that you can do within the actual lease when you're negotiating it to make sure that you're not missing these deadlines. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's a, some some good general advice for well for any for any tenant. But uh, and unless you had something else, I kind of wanted to jump into the 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 contingencies and the purchase agreement that are discussed. And I think that what there was three three main ones, right? The um, yeah the the provider agreements, the lease, which we've already talked about a bunch, and then the there was a lien attached to. I think a piece of well, was it? Yeah, it was a piece of equipment that that the seller it was an X-ray machine. I think it was. Yeah, right. So in general, you'll see these. You'll have the purchase agreement, and there'll be these contingencies in there, typically for both sides. But and for from our client's perspective, these three contingencies are are things that the seller needs to satisfy in order for for the this whole transaction to close. 
So, I mean, there, there's a, a bunch of other ones that can be, you know, it could be a bunch of different items that are that are contingencies from both sides, both buyer and seller. But in this case, we had these three. I don't know if there's anything else after that, but these, these were kind of the three critical ones that we discovered in our first steps of the due diligence process. Right. And and these these contingencies are can be lifesavers in the sense that you get your we structure it so that you can get your deposit back and just basically unwind the the transaction altogether right and they come in handy for sure especially if for example if one of the contingencies may not be coming through in the way that you want it maybe you're satisfied if it doesn't but it gives you an opportunity to renegotiate as well so for example let's say that it's a lease contingency that requires at least something satisfactory to the land, to the buyer or a certain amount of rent or a certain number of years. And let's say that uh, the buyer wasn't able to renegotiate that, maybe they dropped down the, the purchase price, right? Or, or something similar. Yeah. So in this case, with the contingency attached to the lease, was that a, a new lease be executed what, between the, the landlord and I guess the, or the buyer? And that was Which one would be of the, the new entity, component. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the the new entity, right? So you know that's something that has to happen, or else it like because we mentioned before that the, our client was very uh, attached to the location of this, which which makes sense given the nature of the business. So you know, that's one thing. the 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 lien on the equipment, I mean, that, that's pretty common. There there might be liens that are are filed against certain assets, and just, yeah, any any kind of loan, if there's like a business loan or anything like that, usually will have some kind of lien as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you're, it's that's fairly common. Always should do a UCC search, you know, during this process too, just to just to see what comes up. I, I assume I'm positive we did that, but I don't know if it was something that the seller might have done as well. I can't really recall. No, we yeah, we we I think they gave us uh, no, I think we did it on both times, both at the time of due diligence and 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 towards the end of the transaction as well. Oh, I, I think I just gave something away. Maybe I should scratch that out, but. Um, but oh, I, we forgot to mention this uh, again. This uh, this buyer did. I mean, she. You could tell she was a little surprised about the whole five months thing, and and so she she, she she was surprised, but she still handled it pretty well. And I think part of it was the fact that we were able to present a solution pretty quickly too. Well, I think she came up with it. The fact that she gave us knowledge that the lease was already above market made it really easy. And like you said, if it was the opposite, I think, uh, I'm not sure how she would have reacted. It would have been probably a little bit different. Yeah, it would have been a much bigger deal. The, the one thing I was, uh, I guess I shouldn't say surprised with, but that she was perfectly fine with was that the, there was a personal guarantee that was likely going to be there, there was one to the the current lease, the active lease, but like we were explaining right. to hers, you know, the, it's most likely the landlord's going to require that, you know, for for a new lease with her. And just to reiterate from before, it's basically she has her her, her entity that she's formed. The landlord's going to require her or possibly her and her partner to personally guarantee the terms of the lease. And so she was fine with that. I mean, I think, and obviously, if she's confident enough to to purchase this. You know, to go through the transaction itself, and you're going to have faith in it, and you're going to think that you're not going to have any issues over the the term of the lease, too. So I, I think that that makes sense. Uh, sometimes people are 
a little standoffish or reluctant to to sign a personal guarantee, but you know, sometimes there's just no, it's a deal breaker. There's no way that the landlord's not going to allow some sort of personal guarantee. So it's, you have, but it's, it's a case by case situation. Yeah. Again, the market dictates that and whether or not the business has history and, yeah. and if, if there's a existing personal guarantee, it's always unlikely, no matter who the buyer is, that that won't continue. Unless the unless it's a big buyer, then they have some kind of corporate guarantee, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, again, on the lease, just to, it's a big topic. Just last thing on the lease, I think, um, is so in this case, like we said, we we did a new lease, but if if it was not a five months left, if it was another five years or even a few years, we probably just would have done an assignment where the existing terms of the lease would just be assigned to the new entity, and that's how that would work, and and that's how any other contracts that you wish to assume. Would work and and like we said at the top of the commentary is that usually you need the other party's consent. So that document is usually signed by three parties: both the buyer, seller, and that third party. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think that's it. Um, so we we of course are very active on all our social media: Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Please reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. We want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. In fact, especially if you want to submit any questions, you can do that through our uh, social media pages. Or also, if you want to email us uh, at info at uh, legallysoundsmartbusiness.com. If you want to mail us a written letter, um, what should we tell them, Matt? Just uh, don't do that, maybe? <laughs> I mean, I guess they can, right? It's it would eventually get to us, but who knows uh, how long that's going to take? E- emails, I can almost guarantee, will be faster. Almost guarantee, almost. Yeah, you um, never know. All right. Well, I I think that's it. Don't forget to leave a, a a very positive review on on the podcast channels that you you know how you listen to this podcast, whether it's uh, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We like five stars and we like ten stars, uh, but neither, nothing else, just either those two options. Yeah. And if you want to create your own, uh, podcast ranking website, um, just whatever the, the maximum number is, well, that's what we want to, that's what we want to receive. And if you want to rank us, just put our podcast as number one and really yeah. you don't need to that's, list any other podcast. Yeah. I think that's fair. That's a, that's a fair request. It's reasonable. Very good. Well, Tune in, of course, next week, or not next week, I, tune in next call, I should say, or next episode. It's going to be, if you, if you thought this was surprising, there's, there's, there's more, more to come. Yeah, this, this isn't the, uh, I don't want to say the calm before the storm, because this wasn't necessarily calm, but it's, uh, it's definitely going to ramp up a bit from here. All right. Thanks for joining us. Yep. Keep it sound. Keep it smart. Next on Behind the Buy. There's someone that may, may not be a good fit or what have you. This seller, I swear he does not know what he's doing. I just don't see how that would be good for anyone. You just listened to Legally Sound Smart Business with Asar Pasha and Matt Staub. For more information about the podcast, visit LegallySoundSmartBusiness.com. This podcast is intended but not promised or guaranteed to be current, complete, or up-to-date and should in no way be taken as an indication of future results. No attorney-client relationship is created by listening to or engaging with the podcast. The podcast does not constitute legal advice, but rather is produced for entertainment and educational purposes only. Do not rely on the information on this podcast without first seeking the advice of an attorney. The opinions expressed in the podcast reflect the views of those individuals and does not necessarily represent the views of any other individual or business. 
This podcast may contain portrayals of clients by non-clients, reenactment of scenes, and persons which are not actual or authentic, and depictions which are a dramatization.